electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, game stopped. Robin Hood, Reddit, Citadel, Melvin Capital, even Roaring Kitty showed up virtually on Capitol Hill. Could you just answer yes or no? Chairwoman Waters, I appreciate the opportunity to address that. Just yes or no? We always felt comfortable with our liquidity and the additional capital that Robinhood raised. Please answer yes or no. What happened, what's next, and what's at stake for retail investors? One of the lawmakers at that hearing, Richie Torres. It is true that payment order flow is the basis for zero commission trading. But even though there's no visible price, no commission at the front end of the, of the transaction, there is a hidden cost to retail investors at the back end of the transaction. And it's not clear to me whether there's sufficient transparency around the hidden cost. And one of the men in the hot seat, Citadel founder and CEO Ken Griffin, fresh off his Capitol Hill testimony about the power of the retail trader. I never underestimate the skill of the American retail investor at understanding emerging trends and their ability to take advantage of that wealth transformation. Robin Hood goes to Washington. Plus, you say it's your birthday. We've done birthdays together, all three of us, for a very long time on this show. It's Friday. It's February 19th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let me send it over to the birthday boy. Happy birthday, Andrew. Oh, goodness. I, I was hoping I was going to get away with not, not doing birth. Thank you. Oh, no such Thank skating. You, right out of the box. <laughs> Thank, right, right out, out of the box. box. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate Happy it. Happy birthday. I, I, You're welcome. Thank you. It's, it's going to be three hours of, of celebration. Three hours. Three hours. <laughs> 100 and how many minutes is <laughs> 180 minutes 80? of pure celebration. Yeah. Pure uh, what do you request? Beatles? You like that Beatles song? Beatles song is a good one for you. Just to get us to get our blood going, too. Maybe we'll play that going out of the break. Say it's your birthday. Think if we forgot. Like like Molly Ringwald. Think think about it. I mean, that's, remember that? I mean, she went through an entire movie. <laughs> 16 and, candles. Uh, yeah. yeah. And people didn't remember. It was horrible. It was horrible. And, and she got more and more depressed and sad that people didn't appreciate her. So we wanted to make sure right out of the box that was not going to happen. It's, you know. Well, I'm, you know. I'm very appreciative, it, as you know. Uh, I, you know, we've, we've, we've done birthdays together, all three of us, for a very long time on this show. So I'm very appreciative. How long? Is it 12? 12 or 13? It's a long, it's, it's, it is quite a while. And you have, I've Sam, watched Sam. you. You're, aren't you like, 10? Is it only 10? Yeah, you've moved yeah, out I, I of remember. the... Uh, he's in the 40s now, aren't you? You're, you're, uh, you're no longer that young, you know, just go-getter, right? You're Now you're my, sort of on the downward. As my son uh, said last night, as my son said last night, you're not just 40, you're now in your mid-40s. Because that's, yeah, it's 44. Whoa. He thinks that's mid-40s. That's mid what kids are for, so. make us all feel better no, about no. ourselves. Yeah. That, your, son, your son's kids looking at her. Yes, that's early 40s. That that's early 40s. That's early 40s. Okay. That's it. When you hit 45 is mid, 
46 through 48 is mid, and then uh, you'll see how to work it. Yeah, you will find a way. You'll, it, it should <laughs> come naturally to He said to me that anything – uh, we actually had the mid – he said anything over 43. He thought 44 to basically 46 or was, was mid-40s, and then he thought 47 was late-40s. That's how he was – well, that's, that's, I, I will say, that, you know, he's doing it just logic. like they do on the grading scale. That's 10-year-old logic because that's what they do in, in, in grades at school, right? Like if you get yeah, a, right. a 94 to 97, that's a mid-A. It's not an A-plus. It's not an A-minus. Right. I, I, right. I get where so, he's coming from. And he's from. 10. You, you seem right. ancient True. to him. He's just, you know, you seem ancient. Uh, let's, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk more. To We're going to do more of this. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Besides the birthday, uh, we've got a much bigger lineup that has nothing to do with birthdays today uh, in reaction to the Reddit hearing on Capitol Hill that took place yesterday. It sounds like the start of a bad joke. Two hedge fund managers, a social media CEO, Robin Hood, and a roaring kitty walk into a virtual congressional hearing. I ask all members to keep themselves muted. Over webcams. So... This hearing is entitled Game Stopped. Many. Uh, I'm sorry, you're on mute. Many webcams. Why are you here and what are you doing? That wasn't either one of us. Continue, Mr. Griffin. All right. In this era of work from home. Um, oh, I see a bit of noise. Oh, now. sorry. M- Madam Chairwoman, I'm sorry. I think, I think you're not muted. The heads of Citadel, Melvin Capital, Reddit, the trading platform Robinhood, and retail investor Keith Gill appeared yesterday before the 54-member strong House Financial Services Committee to answer questions about market fairness, populism, and what happened when decades-old mall retailer GameStop surged past $400 a share over a few wild days in late January. But half of U.S. Mr. households participated. Uh, I would like you to use your limited time to talk directly to what happened January 28th. Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev received the most attention with questions from both sides of the aisle, largely around the company's decision, amid huge price volatility, to restrict trading in the meme stocks. Here's Republican Patrick McHenry. Why did Robinhood restrict the buying, but not the selling, of GameStop? Stocks like GameStop, AMC, and other underdogs favored by retail traders on the Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets. Look, I'm sorry for what happened. Um, I apologize. And I'm not going to say that Robinhood did everything perfect and that we haven't made mistakes in the past. But what, what I commit to is making sure that we improve from this, we learn from it, and we don't make the same mistakes in the future. Here's committee chairman Maxine Waters and Tenev on Robinhood restricting those sales to meet its own financial obligations. Isn't it true that being concerned about having enough capital uh, to meet deposit requirements, isn't that a liquidity problem? Or could you just answer yes or no? Chairwoman Waters, I appreciate the opportunity to address that. She's yes or no. We always felt comfortable with our liquidity and the additional capital that Robinhood raised. Please answer yes or no. We always felt comfortable I don't have time. I just need a yes or no answer. I, I stand by my statement. Committee members spent much of their time prodding about payment for order flow. Payment for order flow. Payment for order flow. Payment for order flow. 
a practice in which a brokerage like Robinhood receives payment from a market maker like Citadel for directing the order to them. This is how Robinhood and other brokers can even offer commission-free trading. Robinhood made more than $220 million from payment for order flow in just the fourth quarter of 2020. As the market maker, Ken Griffin of Citadel Securities was asked to explain and explain the practice. We simply play by the rules of the road. Payment for order flow has been expressly approved by the SEC. It is a customary practice within the industry. If they choose to change the rules of the road, we need to drive on the left side versus the right side. That's fine with us. I do believe that payment for order flow has been an important source of innovation in the industry. But Griffin was pushed by California Democrat Brad Sherman about whether Robinhood clients receive second-class execution from the market maker because of that zero-commission revenue model. That isn't my question, sir. You're evading my question by making up other questions. Let me repeat. Two identical orders come in. Same stock, same quantity. One's from Robinhood, one's from Fidelity. What happens? The quality of the execution varies by the channel of the order. This is a commonly understood phenomenon in economics, that channels matter. Rounding out the hearing, Melvin Capital's Gabe Plotkin was largely asked about short selling. Reddit CEO about ensuring there were no nefarious actors on the Wall Street Bets forum. And Keith Gill. One of our witnesses here, Mr. Gill, uh, or should I say Roaring Kitty. Who appeared from his home office with a hang in there kitten poster on the wall behind him about the bull case for GameStop that he shared on Reddit and across social media. A few things I am not. I am not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. I do not have clients, and I do not provide personalized investment advice for fees or commissions. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. Now the big question is whether lawmakers will pursue additional regulation. For those who stayed to the end of the hearing, Representative Maxine Waters offered a pretty strong reflection on the testimony that she heard. I'm more concerned than ever that investors are being fleeced and massive market makers like Citadel may pose a systemic threat to the entire system. The committee is going to continue to examine these issues. Let's get back to Joe Kernan with CNBC's Leslie Picker. This hearing is adjourned. Leslie, uh, I don't know. We saw all the usual sort of uh, extracurriculars, right? I mean, oh, yeah. that, that, that we watch and we just, we just go, you know, we elected all these people. I mean, I'm not excusing the, the, the people that are being grilled, but there's a way of grilling people and getting answers without, I don't know, what, what is it? What is it that gets in their mind uh, that they think they're in a position to, uh, I guess they are, but how about asking a question that's probably got 15 or 20 different answers and nuances and that you need to go into, you know, all kinds of detail to explain what happened and they demand a yes or no answer. And, and then if you start to say something, they'll, demand, they'll say it again and again and again just to slap you around just so that you know who's in charge. I mean, it, it, did you see that? I, mean, I did. What is the point? I did. Do you I, want uh... to elicit information? Do you want to elicit information or do you want to let these people know 
you think they're scum. Yeah, I joked on Twitter, uh, you know, am I a cat, yes or no, because that was Keith Gill's opening line. You know, I am not a cat. And that was a definitive yes or no. He is not a cat. He is also yeah, not a hedge fund, he said, during his, his opening remarks. But, no, I, I heard a lot of that, uh, which is, of course, difficult when it comes to the intricate workings of our market structure system. You know, things aren't always exactly yes or no. Uh, but, you know, that's the theater side of this whole thing. You know, uh, Representative Maxine Waters did say that there will be uh, additional hearings on this. If you couldn't get your fill in the five and a half hours, that there will be two more to follow to find more answers. Uh, and there were certain things that I was surprised they didn't actually even really hit at. Uh, you know, when this whole thing went down, the whole dialogue from Washington was all about short squeezes and what that means for volatility. That really wasn't even brought up at all, nor was there a, a true postmortem of what actually took place on that day. There were politicized issues like payment for order flow became very politicized during that conversation. There was a transaction tax that seemed to kind of get brought up a lot. So, of course, it, it kind of went down into politics to a certain extent. Um, you know, yeah. it'll be interesting to see what, what actually comes from this. Well, people see the poll numbers. The politicians know the poll numbers of, of uh, Wall Street and, and the populist uh, uh, sort of feelings throughout the country. So they, they like to play into that. But I, I don't know. They, they shouldn't check the poll numbers for Congress. Probably, probably, you know, maybe don't look too closely at those uh, while they're looking at the Wall Street uh, approval rating. Our next guest, uh-oh, he's on the Financial Services Committee. Uh, he questioned uh, Robin Hood founder Vlad Tenev about what he calls the democratization of financial addiction. Uh, my first question for the CEO of Robin Hood, how much of your revenue comes from him for order flow? I don't recall the exact percentage. Uh, it's over 50%. I worry that the real world impact of Robinhood is the democratization of financial addiction. You know, Robinhood has gaming features that seem to manipulate retail traders. There's one feature in particular that encourages retail investors to tap on the Robinhood app up to a thousand times a day. Do you share my concern that a retail trader tapping on a Robin app a thousand times a day is a sign of addiction. Join us now is freshman Congressman Richie Torres. Uh, it's great to have you on the, the, the show, Congressman. And uh, I, I guess my first question is you went in to the hearings wanting to know certain things. Uh, when you left, do you feel like you found out what you went there to find out? Or, or do, are you still, do you have additional uh, questions about what happened? Look, the plumbing of the stock market is enormously complicated, so I have additional questions. But the purpose of the hearing was to go beyond the sensational David versus Goliath narrative and establish what are the facts, what are the larger policy questions surrounding the GameStop short squeeze. Members had questions about execution quality and payment for order flow and gamification and clearing houses. And, you know, for the first time, the CEO of Robinhood confirmed that Robinhood did not have sufficient liquidity to meet the original $3 billion margin call. There were a series of steps that the Robinhood securities team took. Re-replay all time, sir. At that exact moment, did, did you have the liquidity for $3 billion? 5, 11 a.m.? At, at that moment, uh, we would not have been able to post the $3 billion in collateral. Um, and that was the first time that he had acknowledged as much in a public hearing. So it's important for Congress to get these financial players to answer questions under oath and to answer them as honestly and as forthrightly as possible. That's true, uh, Congressman. And it's especially true that in hindsight, 
that is not a good position to be in. And maybe we, to some extent, you know, dodged a bullet. And we've, I've had, we've had some people come on the show and said it could have been a, a complete disaster uh, that day. We've had other people come on and say that the markets worked well. Um, but once again, in hindsight, we now realize they need a lot more capital uh, if they're going to play in this, in, in this business the way that they play. So, I mean, at least that's a positive, right? Uh, exactly. Look, if, if the stated mission of Robinhood is to democratization of finance. You have to ensure that your company is sufficiently capitalized uh, to live up to your stated mission. But the company, in my opinion, has been poorly served by the uh, mixed and muddled messaging from the CEO. There was an interview, uh, a CNBC interview, in which he famously said, that the company had no liquidity problem. There was no li liquidity problem. And to be clear, this was done preemptively. So we did this proactively uh, and thousands of other securities remain tradable on the platform. Customers that held these positions um, were able to sell them. And we're doing what we can to allow uh, buying and to remove these restrictions in the morning. And I thought that misstatement only served to contribute toward the swirl of conspiracy theories and misinformation that took, held, that took hold in the immediate aftermath of the trading restrictions. Congressman, it, it is arcane, and there, there are a lot of, of nuances uh, to Wall Street. Do you think it's fair at this point, the way it's characterized, not necessarily by, by Congress uh, but, or the media or, or elsewhere, but there is a, a perception now that it's just not a level playing field? And... What, how would you change that? Would it be, it, does it need to be changed internally at the, the companies involved? Or do you think that regulators need to exert more influence over whether the markets are, are fair for everyone? Well, let me be clear that yesterday's hearing was the first of a series of hearings. There's going to be no rush to regulate for the sake of regulating. There's a genuine commitment to fact-finding and understanding and, and I think we all share the goal of how do we best make the markets more accountable to, more transparent for, and more protective of retail investors. It's unclear to me that retail investors have the information necessary for evaluating which brokerage firm offers them uh, the best execution. And I, in yesterday's hearing, I expressed concerns that payment for order flow does appear to have perverse incentives that conspire against execution quality that under payment for order flow, there's a perverse incentive for a brokerage firm like Robinhood to send orders to the trading firms that offer them the highest payment rather than offer the retail investors the best execution. That strikes me as a legitimate concern that we should examine in much greater detail. Congressman, one of the questions I'd ask you is what you think we're trying to solve for when we have the conversation about payment for order flow. Uh, because there is an argument, uh, as you know, that the companies will make that effectively it has democratized this. We talk about uh, it allows effectively more people to trade, uh, to participate, uh, dare I say, and it's something that I don't encourage, but to speculate and to be able to speculate in the same way, uh, maybe not, I shouldn't say the same way, but uh, uh, at, at the same levels potentially as some of these professionals, which is what so much of the public seems to say they want in this instance. It's, it's sort of a, a reversal, a reversal of how we've thought about investor protections over the years. So how do you weigh that? against uh, the idea that if you took the payment for order flow piece of it away, that each trade would have a cost to it, and therefore you'd probably have, I imagine, 
less, less quote unquote trading and maybe less speculation. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. How do you think about it? Well, I want to be crystal clear that we're, we're not advocating a ban on, 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 on payment for order flow. It seems premature uh, to commit to a particular policy course of action. Look, it is true that payment for order flow is the basis for zero commission trading. Um, but even though there's no visible price, no commission at the front end of the, of the transaction, there is a hidden cost to retail investors at the back end of the transaction. And it's not clear to me whether there's sufficient transparency around the hidden cost to retail investors that come from payment for order flow. You know, Citadel Securities said that it saved retail customers over a billion dollars with payment for order flow. But I asked yesterday, how could Citadel possibly know that? Citadel directly transacts with the brokers, not with the retail investors. And it's not clear to me at all how much of the price improvement is being passed on to retail investors and how much of it is being pocketed by Robinhood as profit. So I think there's a case to be made for greater cost transparency. Congressman Torres, thank you uh, for coming on and, and giving us your, uh, your thoughts and your insights on how, how it went yesterday. We're, we were all watching, and I'm sure there might be a, uh, it, it might be episodic, might be another one, might be another episode coming we'll all look forward to, but appreciate your time today. Next on Squawk Pod, hedge funder Ken Griffin, one of the men in the virtual hot seat during the game stopped hearing. Can you testify that on balance, there is no difference, assuming the same size of the order? So, as I said earlier, size of the order is only one factor. You are doing a great job of wasting my time. If you're going to filibuster, you should run for the Senate. From his teenage hustle in a Harvard dorm room, sound familiar, to the staggering seven and a half billion trades for retail investors on a single day, the Citadel founder has come a long way to Capitol Hill. This conspiracy theory that we somehow or another are like some of the big tech giants that have access to personal identifying information is just flat out false. We have a price, quantity, a limit. That's what comes to us in an order from a retail broker. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. In the House Financial Services Committee hearing that uh, captured the attention of Wall Street and Main Street, the heads of Robinhood, Reddit, Melvin Capital, and our next guest were grilled over the GameStop saga and how they've handled the Reddit rally. Joining us right now is Ken Griffin. He's the founder and CEO of Citadel, and we're thrilled to have him on the program this morning. Uh, lots of questions. I know you answered a lot of them yesterday, but uh, hopefully we can get through a, a couple of them today. Um, thank you for joining us. The big question, and here's where I want to start, if we could, Ken, uh, seems to be the debate still around this idea of payment for order flow. The idea that effectively your firm pays Robinhood, it's actually where they get a majority of their revenue from, to execute trades. And therefore, the public perception is that you wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't a benefit to you at the expense of the retail investor. Can you explain the economics of payment for order flow from your vantage point? 
Certainly, certainly. And Andrew, thank you for having me here today. And happy birthday. It's 29 this year. Is that right? A little bit older. Um, All right. By, well, by, by, you'll, you'll catch by, me eventually. 15 years. Thank you. So it's a pleasure to be here. Yesterday was an important hearing in that we were, I was hoping, going to find some understanding of what happened in GameStop and the other meme stocks over the course of the last couple of weeks. We spent a huge amount of time on a longstanding commercial practice referred to as payment for order flow. In the United States, retail brokerage firms are permitted to collect payment from order flow from market centers to whom they send orders. Now, over the course of the last 20 years, as the CEO of Robinhood testified, the retail brokerage firms have become extremely focused on putting various market makers in competition to execute their orders. They will set a payment for order flow rate, say, you know, you pay us X amount per share, and they charge, generally speaking, the same rate to each market maker. And then we're going to route the order to the market maker that provides us with the best execution. Now, the upshot of this is that the retail investor has a better execution than they can on exchange across the orders that we execute for them. And for the retail brokerage firms, they have an important source of revenue that helps to fuel their business model. And one of the key driving changes of the last few years has been Robinhood's push to zero commissions that has spread across the industry for the benefit of all investors. Now, as I testified yesterday, there are reasons that payment for order flow exists. First and foremost is that exchanges are simply not as competitive as we can be off exchange in the processing of retail sized orders. One of the reasons for this is a regulatory mandate that exchanges have to trade in one cent wide increments. We can trade tighter than a penny and share the value that we are still able to capture with the retail investor and with Robinhood and other retail brokers in the form of payment for order flow. So as I said yesterday, one of the ways that we can reduce the amount of payment for order flow is by permitting exchanges to be more competitive. That would change the industry in an important way going forward if this is an area of undue concern. What I will say is that last year, collectively, the market makers delivered about $3.7 billion of price improvement to retail investors. And through the payment for order flow, go ahead, Andrew. Well, let me just ask you a question about this, though. And I want to raise a, a, a letter, which I, I know you're familiar with, uh, that was written by your general counsel, your former general counsel, I should say, back in 2004. And, and maybe I, I imagine your, your thinking has evolved on this. But back then, he wrote, Citadel Group urges the commission, this was a letter to the SEC, to ban payment for order flow. Payment for order flow is a practice that on its face is at odds with a broker-dealer's obligation to its customers. We do not believe that a broker-dealer that accepts payment for order flow and does not pass on such payments to its customers, either directly or through reduced execution fees or commissions, can consistently fulfill its best execution obligations. And I think- And Andrew, uh, do me a favor. Read yeah, go ahead. the front of that letter. What is this letter in reference to? This letter uh, was in reference to payment for order flow rule, rulings around best execution at that time. No, in the U.S. options market. And that's an incredibly important distinction. In the U.S. options market, every single options trade must be executed on exchange. And the context of this letter has been the introduction of the very negatively impacting price improvement auctions, 
which discourage market makers from putting their best foot forward each and every day in the U.S. options market until they receive an order from a retail brokerage firm that they then take into a price improvement auction. And so what's interesting is back at the time that this letter was written, we were witnessing a dramatic transformation of the U.S. options market, one that has been incredibly good overall for investors, but one that has been, in some sense, taken somewhat off track by the introduction of price improvement auctions. That's why when you type in a given symbol on your, on your Bloomberg or on the internet and bring up a price for an option, the market could be 10, 15 cents wide. Right. It's because of the existence of the price improvement auctions. Now for equities trading on exchange, the issue here is that the exchanges cannot be as competitive as we can be off exchange. Can, and can in equities, unlike options, right. we are able to trade off exchange. That's a very important distinction. So, so the other big issue, though, that, that investors and I, there's a public perception is that you get to see the flows, that you get to see information, and that even if you're not front running uh, your, uh, in, uh, your, your investors, which is illegal, that, that the data unto itself has value. How do you use that information? So I think there's been a, a number of misperceptions about the data that we receive from the retail brokerage community. In fact, a prominent U.S. senator asked us specifically about what personal identifying information do we receive from retail investors. The answer is none. We receive an order, and as the, as the party that has to execute that order, what we look at at the moment of receipt is what are the various options that we have to achieve the best execution for that order. And you're exactly right. We are not permitted to trade in front of that order any execution that we can achieve in the context of the market, for fulfilling that order, we must provide back to the retail investor, sometimes even with a price improvement that we add on at the moment of execution. So the big picture is this conspiracy theory that we somehow or another are like some of the big tech giants that have access to personal identifying information is just flat out false. We have a price, quantity, a limit. That's what comes to us in an order from a retail broker. Right. Let me ask you a maybe more meta question about all of this, which is, do you believe that the markets unto themselves are completely fair? And when I, when I say fair, do you believe that my mother has the same opportunity to make money in the market as you do? So the, it's, it all comes down to a matter of horizon and strategy. It's like asking, if I went and played golf this weekend with Tiger Woods, would I win? Of course not. But there are various ways to compete with Tiger Woods off a golf course and do very well. I'm not going to play him on his game, on his course. Your grandmother might be very aware of a sea change in technology or otherwise that will impact our economy. She might look at the car you drive five years and go, hmm, Andrew bought a Tesla. And I think EVs are the, futures of Amer the future of America, and I'm going to buy Tesla stock. And if she'd bought Tesla stock five years ago, she would have made a lot more money than we made at Citadel. So I never underestimate the skill of the American retail investor at understanding emerging trends where real wealth is created and their ability to take advantage of that wealth transformation. One of the big issues that this uh, GameStop mania uh, brought to bear is the issue of shorting uh, and in particular the issue of uh, short selling uh, beyond the float, beyond uh, where, where you have situations where a stock is being uh, <laughs> being shorted uh, more than 100% of the shares that, that are available. Can you explain to the public how that could happen and whether you think it's right? So it's a great question. 
and one that has quite a bit of misinformation. When you short a stock, you have to borrow it from somebody else. And that's typically from a pension plan or an endowment that holds the stock at a custody bank. As the short seller, you then sell that share of stock that you just borrowed into the market. If the share is bought by another institution, that institution is, again, in a position to lend that share back out. Now, why do institutions lend the shares? They can earn a very, very high rate of return on lending a security like GameStop in the middle of the recent events. You know, there were days when borrowing GameStop would cost a short seller an annualized fee of somewhere between 25 and 50%. That's real money to whether it's an ETF holder or a pension plan with respect to lending those shares. And, and let me ask you a, a, a separate question that, that maybe relates to the larger picture of Citadel right now, uh, which is you control, and, and you talked about it yesterday, more than 50% of the retail volume. Is, is that good for the markets when you think about competition? So we control, and we don't control, let's just be clear, we execute about 40% of all the retail order flow in the United States every day. And we do it because we offer the best execution quality to American retail investors of any of our competitors. If they decide that by legislation we should, we should eliminate competition as the basis for which business is done in America, then clearly we'd be in a position to do less business. But we are always advocates for markets that have a level playing field, that are transparent, and where the winners and losers are determined on the basis of their ability to compete. We think it's such a world that our team that works incredibly hard, I mean, my guys put in just absolutely insane hours of the course the last two weeks to make sure that we were resilient and stable in the height of the trading frenzy. Right. We think in a world where competition dictates how business is done, that we're well positioned to do well for our customers and to do well for our shareholders. What do you think the implications are of, of the social media enabled what you're seeing happen on the, in the Reddit community um, and, and what it could do to short selling and the like? For example, do you think that there will be a lot less short selling in the future? There's no doubt in the foreseeable future, the amount of short selling will be reduced by the events of the course of the last couple of weeks. There's just no doubt. What I will say is that it's unclear the power of the Reddit community. That, that will play out over time as we see them converge around other securities, other situations, and the price impact that they have as a community. I think the GameStop situation is incredibly unique in that it was such a heavily shorted stock, and there were some real potential drivers for change. As you know, the founder of Chewy recently joined the board. He had a fantastic reputation in building Chewy. There's an opportunity for change at GameStop that will unfold over the months and years to come. Right. I think it's a very unique situation, and I'd be very hesitant to draw any significant conclusions from the events of the last few weeks in GameStop. Given all the conspiracy theories, though, that were raised uh, on social media and the implications of that, I'm curious, in retrospect, you obviously made a big investment in, in Melvin in the middle of this, Melvin Capital. Do you think that was a mistake? No, I think Gabe Plotkin is one of the finest investors of his generation. But, but, but given what the public perception became around this idea that, that, that Citadel was behind uh, Plotkin on one side, behind Robinhood on the other. In retrospect, do you, do you think it, it created a perception of a conflict? If I had to run my business to the possibility of an insane conspiracy theory emerging at any point in time, I would have no business.
Before I let you go, uh, I do have to ask you one question that's uh, maybe a little bit off topic, but it's something we've been talking about virtually every day on this program for the last several months, and that is, uh, as an investor, Bitcoin. How do you think about Bitcoin today? Are you invested in Bitcoin? I, I just don't spend much time thinking about cryptocurrencies. Really? No, I don't. I, you know, I don't, I don't see the, the economic underpinning of cryptocurrencies. I understand how the value of stock, net present value of earnings. I understand how to think about currency exchange rates around the world. I don't know how to think about what is effectively a digital token. It's a, it's a longer conversation. Ken, I want to appreciate uh, and thank you uh, for being here today, especially after you got grilled yesterday. Uh, and thank you for taking our questions this morning. And I hope you'll come on back uh, and we can do this again for some more time. So thank you. Andrew, absolutely. Thank you so very much. Appreciate it. See you again. Thanks. Squawk Pod will be right back with a couple of festive surprises. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash seat or visit a dealer near you. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's a big morning on Squawk Box after yesterday's hearing. I want to get to Dom Chu, who's looking at some of the big surprises of the morning. Dom. Happy birthday! These are my kids. Hi, Henry, Max, and Sydney. And you're over there. This is unbelievable. Thank you for the birthday wishes. This is a true surprise. I did not know this was coming. I made you a gift at school yesterday. I made you a gift yesterday at home. Thank you, guys. I love you so much. That's so nice of you. And I'm going to kill the producers who are allowing this to happen, but I'm very appreciative. <laughs> Thank you. Guys, I'll... What's funny is I can actually... Go see you in a minute. It's funny because my mother sent me an email last night. She said, are the kids going to be on TV? Should I wake up and watch? And I said, no, I don't know anything about that. I don't think so. And she clearly knew more than I did. So we kept it a secret. It's all, it's we, all well, well, it's all becoming clear to me. Are, are you in the same house? on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm adding are. things That's up here. <laughs> They tricked you. are in the same house. Secret keeping, guys. Well done. Crash they the set. Crash the set. where you, you are. You guys could have crashed the set. Go down the. We didn't we want did to scare you. And they didn't want to surprise. Oh, here they, they come. Go, 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 here go, they go. come. Here they come. Okay, guys. The whole the whole troop is here. Ah, uh, that's better. Ah, that's okay. Better. That's much better. Hi, Sydney. Oh, wow. Sydney, you want to say hey? Oh, it's okay. nice to see I you like guys. Henry, Henry, get in the camera. Okay, well, we're... we're <laughs> Henry, Max, we I go. see everybody. Coming up on Monday, we have a very special interview for you. 
probably the greatest rapper of all time, songwriter, record producer, businessman, hip-hop's first billionaire. He's got entertainment labels, clothing lines, alcohol brands, all kinds of things, including a music streaming service title. We're going to get to talk to Sean Jay-Z Carter. Make sure you tune in on Monday morning for that exclusive interview. And that's the show for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Please subscribe to and share Squawk Pod. And we'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.